Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. My first guest this week is Odili Donald Odita. Two museums have recently commissioned murals from Odita. Earlier this year, the New Orleans Museum of Art commissioned an Odita mural for its lobby, titled Forever It Will Be On View Through the End of 2015. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University commissioned two works, one that Odita made in the museum and one that is on an outdoor wall of the nearby downtown Durham YMCA. We'll have images of all three of them on manpodcast.com. Odita has had solo exhibitions at museums such as the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, the Contemporary Arts Museum Houston, the Studio Museum in Harlem and New York, and at the ICA Philadelphia. On the second segment, Museum of Modern Art curator Luis Perez Aramis discusses his new exhibition, Joaquin Torres Garcia, the Arcadian Modern. It's the first major retrospective of Torres Garcia's work in 45 years. It will be on view through February 15, 2016. Previously, Perez Aramis was a guest on episode number 135 when we talked about his Ligia Clark retrospective. But first, Odili Donald Odita, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Rothko for more. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And we're back. Odili Donald Odita, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with the new work at, at Duke and in Durham, North Carolina. One of the points of origin or inspiration, if that's a better word, you've identified for the work is a man named Julian Francis Abele, whose name I may be mispronouncing. Who was he and how did you come to find out about him? His name is actually is is actually Abel. And I used to say it as that when I first saw it as well because there's there are African it's it's it there are African names with that spelling and that pronunciation. But it's Abel and actually thinking about it, it, it really is beautiful because he enabled himself, he was able to do this, make this accomplishment happen for himself through his hard work. He has enabled so many other people to be inspired by the work he did at Duke. Julian Francis Abel, he was the prime architect for most of the buildings that you have on the campus. I think primarily the West Campus at uh, Duke University. He possibly never had the opportunity to see the work, although there is rumor that he snuck onto the campus to see it in the latter part of his life. So we should quickly explain why he would have had to have sneaked onto the campus at Duke to see his own creation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Julian Francis Abel was the first African-American architect to graduate from the graduate school of the University 
of the architecture school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and he was a pre- president of the senior class there. He went on to, nine years later, be the prime uh, head architect for the Trumbauer architectural firm, which was a pretty much a, a uh, type of a cutting-edge firm hired by wealthy new money, you could say, in New York, Jewish money as well, people who were open to the idea of working with a company that had this kind of clientele and had Julian Francis Abel as the, as the lead architect. They went on to produce a lot of work in the country, buildings at Harvard University, New York City, and as we're speaking here, the buildings at Duke University. Because of Jim Crow uh, laws in the States, he wasn't allowed to, to really be on campus, be present there. His work at the Trumbauer firm, his work as a lead architect, I would understand, was was such that Trumbauer was the face of the company, but he had a great sense, this man had a great sense of being able to hire talent, and he saw Julian Francis Abel's talent uh, while he was a student and had him work for him right after graduation. So this is why he's really of this is why it's really a significance the fact that this man in the south uh, went on to create and build the buildings at this great university and essentially when he died the Trumbauer firm was taken over by other people and they essentially erased Abel's history in the company to give people an idea of, of some of his other buildings away from duke he was a designer of uh, the Widener Library at Harvard, the Free Library of Philadelphia, and he also worked on the Philadelphia Museum of Art for a, a long period of time, for over a decade. So the work is prominent, even if the name isn't as, as famous as it as it might be. So I, obvious question, you live in Philadelphia. Did you know about him before the phone rang from, from Duke? <laughs> right, right. No, of course I, I would have known about him, but it's not like it wouldn't have been in in in, in daily use. I mean, I, I've I've a, a big fan of the Philadelphia Museum of Art here in Philadelphia. It's a great world class museum. They're doing some remodeling, major remodeling and and rebuild of the museum. So his name has come up quite a lot when they show display drawings of the old facade and the origination of, say, the materials that they've used to to build the museum or the origins of materials and and origins of the style of which a museum has. So that's where his name came up and that's where I've noticed the name, but it wasn't something that heavily, heavily promoted. It's just something that's, it's information that's there to access if you want it. The title of the work you've made for the Nasher at Duke references Abel as as a dedication. Is there something specific in your work that refers to Abel or his work, or is the dedication and the influence perhaps more referential? It was really a starting point. It's 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 really about getting the spirit and and a certain kind of passion for the within the work coming through the work. I feel for myself when I'm searching for reasons to make installations reasons to have behind the installation. It's usually something that's motivational and that not only connects me to the story or to the idea of the work, but will be able to connect others to that story and that idea. Things that will be information that will be specific to the environment or to the space or to the people 
and to the people who are engaged in that space. So being that I was doing this install at Duke University, there are many different things that I wanted to consider in the process of the install. When I came upon that information just randomly off of a website, I was just struck by that. It's, it was so significant. It wasn't something mentioned to me when I asked questions about interesting points about Duke or Durham. But when I came across that, it was amazing because it also connected me here to Philadelphia with the University of Pennsylvania. So that kind of effect, I realize, is powerful for everybody. It's a sense of what does create connection? What is the contact that we can have with things, spaces, people? And understanding and being aware of that effect, that feeling, that thought, that idea is really tantamount to creating a community or bridging communities wherever you might go, wherever wherever I might work. So I saw that as a connection to this story, not only through the work that I was doing at Durham, but through my existence here in Philadelphia. And then secondly, the fact that this person, this African-American was of such genius you know, another question for me is like, why isn't this name more household? And it is. I mean, even when I was at the humanities building at Duke University, or I think it was the art history building at Duke University, there was a portrait of Julian Francis Abel on the wall. So he is known and people are aware of him, but it's not as if it's an everyday sort of thing. It's, it's you have to kind of search for it. But then once you see it, you're like, wow, yeah, of course, but it's not given beyond that. So for me, this title, Shadow and Light, is really kind of talking to and addressing this notion of how information can be in the shadows and you need to bring light to it to be, to make it more pronounced, to have people become more aware. And then for this information, if it's important, as this is, to be more celebrated. So turning to the work itself, there are four elements i like to discuss about your work in no particular order, kind of their its relationship to site and place, your use of patterns, your palette, and the surface of the work. So site and place first. When you work with institutions especially, whether it's on a mural or, you know, I guess for that matter, a painting, but probably more murals, do they have a site in mind for you that they hand to you and, you know, say, here you go? Or do you play a role in choosing sites that interest you for a particular reason? It's usually both. Depending on each situation, it's usually a bit of both. In certain cases, I am just, say, given a site, and then I'll have to work with it. Uh, that provides its own challenges. There are other situations where I'm given a series of spaces, and then I can walk through and choose and think about what I might want to do in each of the spaces, considering traffic flow. I like to be able to generally have work installs made in places where people can view them or interact with them in one way or another, or have some kind of significance within the space in one way or the other. So it, it is it's, it's it's a bit of both, and and I and and what underscores all of it is the sense of challenge. I like to encounter some kind of difficulty. I realize, I mean, who wants who wants difficulty? But I think that it kind of makes it more interesting for me. It's sort of like well. How can I make painting exist here? And then how can, what's possible for painting in this space? One reason I asked the question is uh, in North Carolina, you've done a piece indoors. 
at the museum and a piece in, in Durham on, the, on an outer wall of the downtown YMCA. Could you, maybe as a way of accessing how you think about different spaces differently, I mean, it's hard to probably come up with two more different spaces than kind of, uh, and we'll have images of this up on manpatpodcast.com, but the outer wall on which you worked at the Y is very open. It's not like there's a, 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 a big expanse of leafiness that, that, that limits the vista from where it is, whereas the indoor piece is, is, is indoors and much more kind of grounded and sighted. Could, could you maybe talk us through how you, th- you think of creating visuals for two such different sites? I have uh, two practices essentially with my work, uh, my studio practice and then the installation practice. They merge with each other. They feed each other. I'm making paintings in in my space, which is more of a private space in my studio. And then the installs in public are very, very that. They're very public. Uh, They become almost like performances in a certain way. So... When I'm working in the studio, I'm making lots of drawings, drawings that work for the paintings in this way and that way, lots of stuff. Some of it will never see the light of day. A lot of it gets cut up and changed into other things for other projects. So I'm, have, I have these drawings that I work through. I've picked out a bunch that I felt would work with the space in the museum. I wanted to deal with a vertical design, a vertical drawing. I, I felt that that would work best in this kind of a horizontal expanse that I noticed in the museum. While I'm working, things always feed through me. I get information, become more sensitive to the space I'm working in, understand it a little bit better as I go through the process. For this space in the interior, I wanted a vertical. When we started installing, I, start, I noticed other things that really struck me very quickly that I didn't actually even see on the outset. So this is the kind of process, this is the kind of way of working. You think you have everything at, on hand and you're just continually absorbing and learning things and seeing things because one thing you might do sets up a stage for something else that wouldn't be important, but because you did that thing becomes important. And with the verticality that I had instituted in the design, and then the colors I selected brought out aspects of the space that really threw me for a loop at first, particularly that orange wood frame around that entry into the auditorium at the museum, and then the gray framing around that and the floor quality, the quality of the color of the floor. Which is kind of a series of grays, tile, rectangular. Grays that become blue, and in particular in the floor. And then I so saw what happened to, is that I start to understand the language that the architect is dealing with, and in particular color and texture, because you have the blue of the floor, the blue stone, gray, the blue-gray stone of the floor, this kind of orange color, deep orange color in the wood, and then the building that houses the auditorium within the building of the museum is this yellow, like a yellow aluminum siding house or a country house. It has this quality, then I realized that, whoa, this guy is still, this architect, whomever they might be, they're really extrapolating from these cultural references of, of a type of architectural design, a house kind of design that's, that's, that's associative to, I would almost say, like a cultural period in Southern housing and Southern architecture. So I'm 
I'm not an architect, so I'm coming at this as a visual artist, noticing this this patina of things. And as I look up at the building, even through the pictures I'm taking, I realize that what I thought looked like a house, the actual structure of this auditorium is a block form, but the glass ceiling, that's the ceiling of the museum, cuts that block form away so that it makes it look like a house. That was striking. This ceiling of the museum is cutting this element built into it that's a block formation and turns it into a home. It gives it the angle of a pitch, of a roof pitch. So in the end of it all, we adjusted our colors. We adjusted the colors. I did a lot of work trying to move colors around and, and, and make it work visually so that it, on one hand, creates this landscape. This is what I think of the painting at the, in the museum. It creates this landscape that positions a situation of shadow and light or light and dark in a recession of space. And then standing back and looking at the painting with this yellow form that becomes a house within this museum, it looks like the hearth of a fireplace. And that was amazing to see that too, that this painting becomes active as fire or as, as a bright light with its shadows included coming out of this house. When you're working outdoors and you don't have those framing devices, if that's the right right phrase, you know, what what is the different challenge that presents and and how does it change how you look at and approach and think about that kind of place? Well, it's it's definitely was more challenging with respect to how much information I was taking in to make that work. My my installation crew, we had a term for these installs, Nasher 1 and Nasher 2. Nasher 1 was the in, interior install and Nasher 2 was the exterior. There were there was the aspect of this space, it was it's a, it, it's a sort of a crossroad in respect to how many different things are happening, were happening there. It's the YMCA building. YMCA has a history unto itself, which is a really profound history, I think, in the States with regard to community centers. Then it's near hotels. It's near Black Wall Street. It's near this amazing theater. It's near several restaurants. And this area is just part of what's growing and expanding in Durham. So I had to think and draw on this. I was thinking about the city of Durham itself as a southern city as a city with its own specific growth, the city that holds these universities within it. I was thinking of the different kinds of people that would walk through the place and, and encounter that facade, that surface. So what I was thinking about was quite a lot of things, and I tried to be able to bridge all these things together, trying to bring all these things together, yet still be specific. As an artist, it's, it's sort of the problem is always that one is being specific and you want to be specific and at the same time open to almost everything you can be and that's what makes art in a way very easy and very difficult this idea of being able to making art very easy and difficult in the sense of being able to on one hand be open to what life is and what life can bring you but wanting to be specific about something in particular at the same time so in working through the design and process of the of, of this particular wall, you know, I did a lot of different things. And in particular, I could say that what was most important for me in the design of that install, design of that 
of the colors was the nature of the wall itself, the structure of the wall itself. Again, accepting the limits of the wall and the in the sense of expanse of the wall as well. I took in aspects of the trees and plant life. I noticed that there's a lot of within the city, there's these you know stone structures and whatnot, metal structures. Then there's these bursts of floral everywhere, and I wanted to really engage that and and use the color to speak with that in a certain kind of dance and concert you know a certain kind of uh, back and forth with this idea of what is that outburst of organic life in the city and how it mediates itself with the the sense of climate and temperament of the space within that city then i was thinking about the histories you know this 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 is a city that has a really great history when you think about it as a a kind of an entrepreneurial city and a sense of, of what was allowed and what was allowed to grow. Um, when I was reading about the tobacco industry, I came up upon some really funny stories about how, not lawless, in fact, but how organized the lawlessness was in that city. In a, in, in, and I'm speaking really about just the kind of, just the, 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 the energy of building businesses where they have not been before and that and these businesses grow fast and faster than people can regulate and so stories about bars and and the way people got you know no signs where they used to read no shooting no cursing no spitting things like this but i love it i was just thinking about people just going to work doing stuff working hard and and playing hard and in the same it, with all in mind growth with growth in mind. And so I see that as, as, as promising. And, and then to think about the an idea of, of Black Wall Street, the, the fact that they allow black businesses, the, the insurance form, companies and firms, and it, allowing that to proper. And I use the word allow because I'm talking about the kind of segregation that exists in there and it existed in America. And yet the community, the culture, the space, the city, let these organizations prosper within within these restrictions. And it's not like they didn't suffer racism and prejudice, but these businesses were able to grow and survive in their time. And a lot of people lived well from that livelihood. And the idea for me was that in this American space at that time, when you had extreme segregation, racism, and so forth, that these businesses were still able to thrive within that kind of community in the South. To me, that's pretty amazing. And if I remember my history correctly, the Duke family, you know, from which the university takes its name, of course, actively funded and invested in a number of Black Wall Street businesses. That, and, and that's a beautiful thing, you know. So this is the kind of story or stories I'm collecting when I'm making work wherever I go. And for Durham, it was important for me to be able to just sift through this and feel this stuff immediately and be able to use that as my inspiration. So with the design there, I had these this kind of expanse, wing-like expanse. I wanted to create something that would page out, that would open out from the wall using the center as, a, as the negative space or the space of meeting for this winged expansive design. So it's a coming out or going in, and yet there's this empty space where it's like 
the last step is to be filled by possibly the viewer or possibly the viewer going into the future contemplating what their space is all about. Let's talk about palette and color for a moment. When I think of your work, I think first of of the collisions between colors, of the way the flat planes of color you use play off of each other, you know, kind of all directions. When you are making a piece, whether it's on canvas or on a wall, do you think more about individual colors or do you think about groupings of colors and their relationships to each other? I'm thinking about colors in, in, in that are working together. I mean, of course, I'll be thinking about individual colors at certain moments. But for me, really what's important is to be able to have a sense of what the colors are doing. I Early, early, and I'm talking like 15 years early, 16 years early, when I started my painting project, this one that I'm working on currently, Still, it's it's. I was thinking about just oh, I can just use any kind of color. This is really early on, and I'm thinking oh, I could just use any kind of color. Just bring any kind of color together, and quickly learn that that just doesn't work. I mean, you just get a a, a bloody mess. For me, it's it's. I realized that there's something that has to come behind the color. There's some kind of meaning that has to be with the color. A sense of reason for the color to be there, or it doesn't do anything at all. I won't have what I'm talking about earlier is that that connection, that connect to what I'm making or that connection to the reason and, and, and the reasoning for the existence of a color within a space. So for me, it's it's there's a lot that comes into the consideration. And for me, the color is representative of space. It's representative of essence. It's representative of thought. And it's representative of force and then so many other things. And ultimately, it's representative of possibility. Your work is really distinctive for the, the, the patterns and shapes within it. You know, when, when, when I see one of your pieces from a long way away, I immediately, you know, it's very distinctive. You told Stephanie Jason of the magazine Contemporary And that you have a series of books or mini books with hundreds of pages of patterns and those patterns form a kind of, quote, basis of food for thought for you. So I'm dying to know what those books are. And could you maybe talk us through how you make use of them? Yeah, I was actually talking about my collection of drawings, these drawings that I've made for... Things that you made. Yeah, I got yeah you. the drawings for the, 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 my paintings. My practice can be maniacal in the sense that I'm very... There's certain kinds of order and organization that I don't see because I think it's normal. Other people say, you're crazy. <laughs> You have too much order there, too many things going on. But um, the books I have of drawings go back to 1998. And as well, I have a collection of all the colors and all the various color combinations used in my paintings since 1998. I save the color chips, I call them, for the paintings in case there's any need for repair for damage and just for history's purpose and to underscore this it's because you know i i think of it like this my father was an art historian and before that a painter and for me he gave me the love and respect of art and nurtured that in me as as much as my mother did but through his sense of cataloging his awareness of history and the need to be able to come back again and look at why or what why something was made and for what it's my reason and purpose to collect this information 
And so with the drawings I collected for, you know, the sake of my studio practice and to just see my development. And it's always striking to see earlier work and what I was thinking about to to now. So there are several books, several binders I have just of drawings, drawings, drawings. And essentially they're just grid drawings, just on gridded paper, either pencil, pen, maybe charcoal, color charcoal sometimes, of designs, of drawings for that were just space considerations, considerations for paintings, considerations of ideas and thoughts around painting, whatnot. Just in, a, in essence, they could be the thought of as equivalent of a, of a sketchbook, but in my case, they're actually working drawings. Some, some have, quite a few have been used for paintings, and most sit there to be used later. And it's often the case that drawings made quite a number of years back become paintings today uh, only because I might not have understood the space I was making with the line on the grid, just experimenting, exploring, and then over time understanding its possibility at a later point. I probably should have asked this when we were talking about your use of color, but it, it, it came to mind as, as you were just talking. The, the mural you recently made for the New Orleans Museum of Art has big expanses of white, at least in one part of it. Do you think of white as a color there? Do you think of it as, how do you think of those big, those unusually large almost expanses of white? Well, it's, it's, I've always, I've coded it. I've come to code it in a certain way, but I mean, as I start, as I speak with and think of what I say to my students, my students in color class, I say, there's no such thing as white. There's no such thing as black. Those are just constructs of absoluteness. When we, I place a white piece of paper against the white wall. The white wall might become yellow color and the piece of paper might become a blue. And then I put a third piece of white paper and then it shifts the two colors that were white into another kind of field of color range. And the third one becomes another kind of color. And then I can keep doing this and keep showing them the shifting space that we termed as white is no longer that, no longer fixed. And I do the same thing for black paper and black objects in this space. So then I talk about the con nature of constructs, the nature of language, and how these notions are in our mind and are in our mind culturally and communally. Then we, you know, we have them read about these things, you know, white space and white scapes. And I use these different books to talk about this. But the fact is that when I'm using white, it becomes a color, it becomes a space, it becomes sometimes a negation or a contrast to color itself. It's, it works with color. It's a pause, it's a break, it's a relief. It does many different things. And again, that plays in concert with this idea that I'm growing with, this idea of understanding that things are just relative, but not relative in isolation, relative in, in connection. Thing, one thing is not seen understood without the next thing and then the next thing again changes the terms for, for each and each together you mentioned your father a moment ago he's an art historian e okachukwu odita um, has an mfa in addition to a phd and he's taught art history at at ohio state since i think the 1980s yeah and uh, since the the late 70s actually oh late 70s yeah and and you in your practice have gone out of your way to embrace art history in a number of ways. So for example, 
starting in the early 1990s, you undertook a project um, in which you interviewed black abstract painters who were active going back into the 60s and 70s and 80s, artists such as Howardina Pindell, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and Stanley Whitney. Could you give us an idea of what you got out of that and how maybe one or two of the things you heard or learned may have worked its way into either your practice or specific works? Yeah, I was working at Kinkelaba Space and uh, Kinkelaba Gallery with Joe uh, Overstreet. And I worked in his studio there as well in New York City. My father was in contact with a man named Dr. Lorenzo Pace. My father, Emmanuel Okuchuku, Emmanuel Odita. He was um, friends with this uh, New York artist that I met when I just moved into the city, Dr. Lorenzo Pace. And he through him, uh, he introduced me to Joe Street, and I got a job at the Kinkelaba Gallery. And I met a lot of these artists through that contact. This was after working at as an intern at the New Museum of Contemporary Art, where Marsha Tucker was still running this space and walking through the offices daily. Yeah, Marsha Tucker was at um, the New Museum of Contemporary Art, and I had a really great experience meeting all those artists there and seeing them through her eye and what she did in creating the new museum. But what's significant about stating that fact is that when I got to Kinkelaba, with all the things that new museum was doing, and they were doing amazing things, this information that I gained access to and worked through at Kinkelaba was dynamic with regard, with regard to African-American art or black art. The people I had access to, and did I did I refer to that? Did you did I mention? Was I able to mention? No, no, no. The people that I had access to was incredible. From Sir Rodney Sir, who was the director there, meeting Terry Atkins for the first time there, David Hammonds, Nanette Carter, Howardina Pendel. It was just incredible to be able to have this knowledge at my fingertips, and to be able to have this experience there. I was, in addition to the artists that went through this space, I was able to be part of something that was even greater in the community. There was a gathering of the tribes, which right around the corner from the, this, this, from Kinkelaba Gallery. So Steve Cannon, the publisher of Gathering of the Tribes, had come by quite often. Because of family relations, David Hammonds was there all the time, and I never knew who he was. He was just the guy who would come by and hang out with Joe. There was a collective, a DJ collective around the corner, and uh, DJ Spooky was a part of that in the early 90s. And I didn't even know he was doing some of his landmark stuff there, right around the corner at this kind of uh, industrial collective. Sound Lab was there as well. So there's all this stuff that was happening in this neighborhood that was, you know, lower, low, lower East Side, Alphabet City, that was just going on. And I was just in the middle of it this wide-eyed kid in the middle of all this stuff. And the most important thing that happened in working there was realizing that this information that was pooled in that house, in the Kinkelaba Gallery, was information lacking in my, primarily in my academic experience. I had to essentially go through the process of teaching myself about all these artists that I didn't have access nor information on while in school. And afterwards, I started giving lectures at universities, being invited just to share this information and speak about these artists that I researched through the library, slide library at the Kinkelaba Gallery. 
I actually picked a bunch of these artists that were really interesting to me, and I started making site visits to their studios, going and speaking with them about their work. Ed Clark, Al Loving, Gregory Coates, Nanette Carter, again, Howard Dina Pendel, and others. I went to their studios out of a need to know more about this work. Because I keep thinking back, like, what, 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 why would I do that? I mean, that's, a lot, that's work. But I had the desire to do so because I just didn't know anything about this work. And I knew that it, 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 it prefaced my difficulty as a student in school wanting to speak about things that I didn't have the actual language for, but the sense of. And this work from all these artists really highlighted something that it was important for me to be able to investigate, understand, and search for in my own way through myself and through my own experience, what it means to be black in the world. So is the way that that experience ends up in your work more that it taught you how to be an artist or pointed a way for you or was talking to Stanley Whitney about relationships between colors in his paintings or something like that something that has stayed with you in a more specific way it, it, it was it was a bunch of all of that really it, it, it helped me to understand for instance the difficulties that these artists in hearing their stories about how difficult it was for them to just show their work in the New York art world to be able to be taken seriously for their work in the New York art world. Because the fact, of the, the, the fact of the matter here is that we're looking at art that's seen as second class from institutions onward. And that's the problem, that they were seeing it as second class. And I'm t- taking terminology and language used from formalists when they're speaking about this work. Second class. And this work is not at all that. And so I'm hearing their stories about that, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is what I'm going. To, this is what I'm already sensing as a newbie in the New York art world. This is what I'm already sensing. But the fact of the matter is, these these artists went through this, this sense of ostracization that occurs because of race and and, and content, and the and the and the notions of of how this content is valued or devalued. But hearing their stories too, it was important for me to engage a sense of awareness of my experience because I am. Nigerian in America. You were born in Nigeria and your family moved to the United States when you were six months old, I think. Yes, through due to the Biafran War. So the nature of skin and skin type and the experience that happens because of this information binds us all. But then the fact of the matter is that we have a sense of specificity, which is our experiences as individuals. I'm not this person. This person is not me. I'm not that person. I'm myself. We might have common commonalities, but we have experiences that are unique. And those experiences, I believe, are important to be able to draw from and, and to speak through. And so for me, it was able to, I was able to look to these artists and the way that they encountered their situations, their, their understandings, to see their beautiful work and to be able to have, in essence, a certain inspiration to bring mine forward. And it was this work in concert with everything else that I've experienced and learned from while in school and out. But it was very important to have this kind of personal, if you will, this kind of heart, this intensity that comes from outrage, that comes from denial, that comes from pain. And to be able to understand how to transfer that energy into my work through my own way. 
other parts of your formal education, or for that matter, informal informal education, have you found the tradition of American hard edge painting, whether it's Lois or Feidelson or Frederick Hammersley or John McLaughlin or Ellsworth Kelly, of interest, or is that something that people like me and and curators and historians read in as an interest? Well, the, uh, those artists you mentioned are of great interest to me. I love all their work, and as much as I love Norman Lewis's work. And as I said earlier, talking about pain, we all suffer in different ways, whether whichever group, whichever gender, whatever uh, orientation, whatever politics that we have, we all go through kind of suffering, but we have also celebration in our cultures and our lives and in our individual states of being in our groups. And it's those things together that uh, I feel it's important to stress. Now, with the artists you mentioned, these are great artists. Uh, Agnes Martin, Bridget Riley, Joan Mitchell. They, these are all great artists, and I appreciate that. Now, the question for me is a lot of times I come to this idea of what does art mean when you talk about cultural definition and cultural ownership? And there is this kind of consideration I always I had while I was in school. And there is an artist I met through, Kinkelaba, Peter Bradley. He spoke to me quite clearly. I would help to install a show there in the early 90s at the Kinkelaba Gallery. And he said something that really I can never forget. He talked to me about an art dealer who said that he shouldn't really paint anymore, that it's a white man's game, that he should focus on sculpture. And then I think about the Black Male Show in, in New York City, and I think about that was in the early 90s, and I think about this nature of conceptualism and conceptual art and thinking about how there seems to be the art world is seeming to allow these black artists to make work that not necessarily in the realm of painting but in the realm of conceptualism the conceptual object that there's an ownership being played out with these artists through these art with these artists through the through, through the realm of the conceptual and this always bothered me because i'm i'm a painter and i'm thinking well, am I, am I allowed to make paintings as a black person? Am I allowed to have this subject matter in this work? Can this subject matter be considered as relevant or interesting to, to discuss uh, in this work? And this is still, I still don't have the awareness of artists like Norman Lewis and their history or uh, the book that never was published due to legal reasons, uh, The Search for Freedom. African-American Abstract Painting, 1945-1975. These artists, I found, I guess I was sourced a lot of the artwork and the slides I wanted to use in the slide talks that I began at that time through this book. Artists like Haley Woodruff, Hayward Bill Rivers, another one I like, Charles Alston, Rose Piper, Ronald Joseph, Ed Clark, as I mentioned earlier, Frank Bowling, who was somebody who was amazing to meet at that time, Alma Thomas. These artists, Richard Mayhew, all these artists were, were artists that, for me, resonated because of their painting, the fact that they were painters really making great discovery and feeling the arguments that might be, have been in place to keep their work hidden or to keep the work outside of the mainstream or out of the academies. Because I'm telling you, when I was in school, never heard of any of these people. We should mention you went to um, Ohio State as an undergrad and then Bennington for your MFA. Yes, and I had a professor, African-American professor, who really was a primary force for my 
engagement with color, Fioris West. My father was also uh, teaching art history, history of African art and archaeology at Ohio State University. But even with these two individuals present within the history, art history and the fine arts department, these two individuals in, the, in these two large departments, it wasn't enough to give me the information that I had to gain on my own in New York through the Kinkeleva Gallery and with the auspices that they uh, allowed me at, at in New York City. So I find that the question was a question that was still continuing for me, this question of, first of all, the lack of information, the lack of, of, of access in the universities and the academies. And then in New York City, seeing the enactment in the marketplace of this lack of information, lack of access, being instituted by institutions and being re reified by artists themselves. Artists telling me, on one hand, that work is second rate. Artists telling me, on another hand, oh, somebody's telling me not to make paintings because the market won't accept it. And then coming to terms, coming to another notion of this whole idea of, of existence in the marketplace when I'm seeing shows like the Black Male Show, I'm seeing shows like Gary Simmons or Glenn Ligon or Lorna Simpson and Carrie Mae Weems, but seeing a type of work that's not necessarily painting-rooted. Or if it's painting-rooted, it's intensely conceptual. So where's allowance then? Where, where does allowance come in? Or does the frame of, 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 of dialogue have to always be, does the dialogue always have to be framed in ways that the marketplace allows? And that's when I think all of this crystallized for myself, where I could take this information, all this histories that I was building for myself, and focus it, understanding my own place as a Nigerian within America, and our place in this magazine, focusing on the notion of contemporary African art, how it deals with art that's African and traditional, how it deals with art that's African within and in, with respect to the academies and institutions that only deemed African art as traditional, and then taking this African conscious into the present through, through the presentation and the publication and the investigation of contemporary living African artists in an art world context. Finally, how you've mentioned your Nigerian background a couple of times, as, as have I. How do you maintain? I mean, so in the in in the last you know couple decades, you've lived in Vermont and Philadelphia and New York and Columbus, Ohio. How have you maintained or built or expanded your engagement with with Nigeria over the last ten or fifteen years? I visited the last time I visited there was in two thousand two, and I plan to go there soon again. There's this idea of, first of all, of understanding your experience through your heart and your mind how you carry your narrative through stories, how you might carry your narrative, cultural narrative through food and the communities that you have outside of, uh, say, one center and bringing it into another center. I'm interested in, in this, I'm interested in notions of, this notion, the fiction of, fictions of authenticity. And I was in an exhibition with that title 
in 2005 that inaugurated the St. Louis Contemporary Museum of Art. But that, that title has stuck with me as something very important to consider relative to this idea of constructs of self, how we might understand ourselves and affix ourselves to this idea of we are this because of this, because of that. We are this because of that. How we affirm notions of truth when in fact, what is truth when we understand language itself is a construct. If we are going to look at truth, for me, what's more truthful is the idea of experience, what one goes through in their life, what one actually experiences in day from one day to the next. So, for instance, I could be told I'm Eskimo every day and then find out that, no, I'm Mexican, you know. So the thing is that I understand that my parents told me stories. They told me stories about their past about the experience of being placed. And I've heard these stories most of my life and, and they've built a certain reasoning within myself. But as we understand the world of, of, of stories and the world of things, they, these things change and shift. And there are commonalities and there are experiences that are true, but we have to know that there are other things that come into being when we have a story. Odili Donald Odita, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. There's so much that we said and so much that more we could have said and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents San Diego Collects on view at its La Jolla location from September 26th through January 10th. Featuring a selection of works from private collections around San Diego, this exhibition aims to recognize that the cultural resources of our city are thriving not only within the walls of our museums, but also through the efforts of many committed individuals. With a glimpse into private collections, San Diego Collects showcases the diversity of art our region has to offer. Works by both established and emerging, as well as international and local artists, attest to the fullness of our community's collecting spirit. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Museum of Modern Art curator Luis Perez Aramas. His new exhibition is Joaquin Torres Garcia, The Arcadian Modern, the first major American retrospective of the Uruguayan modernist's work in 45 years. It'll be on view through February 15, 2016. The catalog was published by MoMA. Luis Perez Aramas, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Early in your catalog essay, you note that Joaquin Torres Garcia participates in two modernities, in Europe and in South America. Let's 
Let's start there and talk for a moment at how you think that manifests, manifests itself in his work. Does it happen all at once or do we see clear steps or a clear break or two? Oh, that's a challenging question. You know, I would say that maybe that's a interpretative construction that I dare to suggest in my essay. What I think Torres Garcia stresses is that probably there is no one single modernity but that rather that modernity was, as all other historical styles or movements or chapters in the history of symbolic forms, the consequence of endless migrations, numerous communities exchanging information, and several geographies. However, what is true is that, at least in this country, and at least from the point of view of these mainstream institutions such as MoMA. Somehow a history of modernity has been built that tends to simplify it as a unit single thing. And that's, that's why I kind of say that. I wanted to contribute to clarify, which might be too ambitious, I wanted to suggest that there is an endless discussion about the issue of how modern art came to exist and how it changed and it continues to change, maybe today, and specifically how we can see it from at least if we keep ourselves in what I call the North Atlantic Dialogue or the Atlantic dialogue between Europe and, and the Americas that actually fed on, on both directions the, the history of modern art, how could we see it from one and the other perspective, from the perspective of, of Europe and from the perspective of the transnash, of the transoceanic movement to the north of the Americas, but also from the perspective of the Americas, or of you want from Latin America. And Torres Garcia, at least at the end of his life, during the second half of his life, clearly stated the possibility and even the utopia of a kind of modernity that, that, that would be specifically from the South, that, that would be specifically a modernity of the South. So he was, at every single moment in his life when he shared a community and and a location totally embedded in that community and in that location, but also he always maintained the clarity or the awareness that he has come from South America and that he would ultimately come back to South America. Are there things in the work, whether the paintings or the wooden constructions, that he thought of or might have thought of as specifically being from the South that he would have thought had an intellectual geography rooted there or a physical something rooted there or yeah. was not well, that not the way he thought? Yeah, I think the South is a construction, as we know. It's a symbolic construction. Uh, obviously, our auditors would uh, know that South is a geographic location, but when we say the South is a construction, is that if you want to kind of enter in a in a dialogic tension with the symbolic forms that are produced in the north of the world 
and you come from the south of the world, you build this construction, which is a symbolic construction that we can call the south. And it's interesting because it developed throughout the work of Torres Garcia by layers of amplification. The first south that he addressed was the Mediterranean south vis-a-vis the north of Europe when he embedded and he embodied this idea of a specific form of Catalan modernity at the, at the very early 20th century that would recall or build the mythology of a golden age of the Mediterranean cultures. And that's kind of a first south in Torres Garcia. But then there is a second south, an amplified south that he would build at the end of his life when he returned back to Montevideo. And he was what, from Uruguay. He's from Uruguay, exactly. Uruguay is a small, but very cultured country at the south tip of South America. And he was born there, then moved very young to Barcelona, Spain, and then at the end of his life, moved back to Uruguay. And from Uruguay, he would establish, in Uruguay, he would, he would establish his workshop, his, his, his several associations with artists, and he kind of would manifest this intention of building a modernity of the South, what he would call the constructive universalism that would also rooted in mythologies that are specifically pre-Columbian and specifically from the, the, the originary um, populations in the Americas. However, what I think is clear is that he always knew that this connection with some kind of originary instance, this connection with origins, was always a recreation. And he was kind of clear of that when he, very early on, in one of his first commissions in Barcelona, which is this fresco that, you know, invite people who are in New York to come to see the show. The, the first work that opens the show is this big fresco. He inscribed this phrase that actually says temporality is only, but is nothing but symbol. We, we establish conventionally temporality in order to link ourselves to reality and to our memory. And so he knew that past was always forever lost and that we, we needed at every single present moment to reinvent that past. So to go back to your question, and I am sorry that I was so convoluted in my answer, yes, at the end of his life and even before he moved back to Uruguay, he started to introduce symbols that are specifically pre-Columbian or reference to Inca deities or, you know, elements that you might found in pre-Columbian cultures or even in aboriginal cultures, not, not, not only pre-Columbian, aboriginal cultures in, in the South of the Americas. Let's dip into some of the, the, the groupings of work and let's start with the pictographs. It's a form that he, he engages in with particular intensity uh, starting in roughly, what, the late 1920s? Yeah. What makes that become a thing? Yeah, well, you know, I think Torres was, when it's just to, to give a brief synthetic biographical resume of his, of his life, you know, he's, he's, he was born in Uruguay, he, he then moved to Barcelona, Spain, then he, he came to New York in the 1920s and he went back to Europe and he spent 1920s and early 30s in Europe and then at the end of the 30s he's back to Uruguay. And while he's in Paris between 1926 and 1933, I think he takes part in what is probably the last battle of early modern abstraction against figuration or against surrealism, which is 
that uh, polemic and, and set of discussions and publications and manifestos and exhibitions that were organized around a group called Cercle Guy, the square and the circle, to which uh, artists such as Mondrian, uh, Fanton Gerlot, Jean Arp, Sofia Toiberar participated alongside Torres Garcia. Torres Garcia was kind of the elder there, the, 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 the elderly figure there. And before the pictographs, you see a lot of Mondrian or Van Doesburg exactly. in the work. Uh, primary colors and structures. Primary colors were very, very dirty, never pure and, right. and, and pristine, right. which is a, a signature, I would say, even resistance coming from Torres Garcia mm -hmm. to the, this idea of a, of a pristine form of abstraction. And within that group, he, he clearly establishes and he states that he would never feel comfortable in pure abstraction. Actually, he understood I think very early on, but he clearly stated that at that moment, that the opposition between abstraction and figuration was kind of groundless. That if you think twice, you would realize that you use any artist, you use the same tools, the same figures to build abstract compositions or what he would call concrete comp compositions that might refer to reality. So he he wanted always to deal with this, this possibility of integrating the, the, the basic tools of abstraction, the grid, the elementary forms, uh, the, the kind of an schematic impulse, with the possibility of maintaining a form of symbolization, the presence of symbols, the presence of icons in a very schematic and, and flat way, voluntarily flat, and even also materially precarious way, he wanted to stress the possibility for abstraction, or more specifically for construction, which is a way he would call the, the, the structural architecture of his works, and, and he would say there is always construction in art, art is always a form of construction, the possibility for construction to address meaning and meaning that can aim to be universal. And so that is where the pictograms come to play a very important role. You see this structure, this kind of grid, and within that grid, and sometimes inscribed within that grid, these pictograms and elements and symbolic elements, and some, 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 sometimes those same elements multiply the grid or transform the grid in a kind of a, a very complex labyrinthic structure. This is all 20 years, of course, before Gottlieb plays with some of the same ideas in, in New York. What is Torres Garcia's book called Structures? comes along in 1932. So a few years after the pictographs, what is his, his, his collaged book called Structures and why is it important? I'm, I'm very happy that you asked me this question, because <laughs> when I found that book in the archive in, in Montevideo, I first saw a photocopy that one of the heirs had of that book in New York, and, and then I really wanted to see the real thing in Montevideo. When I saw that book, I understood that Torres Garcia, I understood that that um, document which is, a, as you say, the collage, a book made of collages, might allow us to think that Torres Garcia took part in a against-the-grain collective movement of uh, thinking and, and intellectual uh, research around the late 1920s and early 1930s by people who thought 
that the importance of memory should be inscribed in the very specific modern way to produce art and to think about art. Basically, uh, people like Abby Warburg, uh, who in 1928-1929, Abby Warburg, who was probably the greatest German art historian, or the one who really concluded the great history of art historians that began with Winkelmann in the, in the 18th century, Abby Warburg, who was a specialist in the Renaissance and who, at the end of his life, uh, understood that somehow is the existence and the community with a present form of symbolic language what, may, what makes possible to address past and memory as something totally lost, uh, what he would call nachleben of, of resurgence or, or survival of forms. And, and, but also people like the, uh, the, anthrop you know, the ethnologist, anthropologist, American Frank Boas, who by 1927-28 was writing about primitive art and was ex establishing uh, dismounting the mythology that would think that primitive art is a very beginning moment in the, in the history of symbolic forms. And Boas would argue, no, this is one of the most refined forms. The schematism that we find in primitive art is one of the most refined, and actually he comes after representation. And, and, and people like Walter Benjamin. So at that moment in 1932, Torres Garcia produces this book of collages where he basically juxtaposes without any form of argumental, verbal uh, development, visual elements coming from modern technology, modern architecture, modern art, scientific diagrams, descriptive uh, diagrams with primitive art, aboriginal art, ancient architecture, Byzantine frescoes, Renaissance art, and all in a kind of horizontal, all-over, non-hierarchical uh, setting. Kind of like a comparative visual dictionary. Exactly. It's a, it's a comparative visual dictionary where he is put in, put in an action, his analogical thinking of forms and, of, and symbols, and in a way it is an encyclopedia of this kind of approach to the world of, uh, the world of symbolic forms that he was proning in his art. And some, sometimes, uh, as is the case of the page that we, we have in the exhibition opened, he introduces his own work. The last group of work I'd like to ask about are the shaded tubular abstract forms that start in 1937. New Yorkers in particular, but Americans in general who are used to American museums running modernism through Paris, probably see these and first think of Leger. I, I would imagine there's a little more to them. What prompts them and why do they hold Torres Garcia's interest so intently and for so long? I jokingly say that I, I enter into this challenge, not to use another word, of organizing this exhibition, which was very difficult to organize, and I'm very happy we did it, in order to install this room of black and white and brownish monochromatic structural abstractions that Torres Garcia produced in Montevideo between 1935 and 1938. And, and, and I truly believe that uh, in the Americas, uh, it's, it's a really unique case of, of consistency, consistency and, and, and really systematic uh, uh, logic uh, uh, of, of abstraction. And what I think they are, and why they are fascinating, is that they are, yes, maybe fragment of modern machinery, and they might recall Leger, but they could also perfectly be 
fragments of pre-Columbian architecture, uh, walls of Cusco and Machu Picchu. And both things, the tubular, the grid, the, the kind of stone-based, tectonic, uh, strong architectural compositions, which look totally abstract, are absolutely concrete in both directions. They could be a fragment of a modern thing that we can't truly name, an engine or something, but also a fragment of a tectonic presence, of, a, of an architectural ruin, of a pre-Columbian something. And what makes them fascinating to me is that in that sense, he who was so convinced that abstraction and figuration, if you want, he would, he would not like the word figuration, abstraction composi abstract compositions and concrete compositions were just options and that you could take them at any moment and that, that there, was, there was no hierarchy between them that there was no ultimate goal to be abstract or ultimate goal to be figurative. That, that, that was the freedom of the symbolic production. But in these paintings, which are abstract, the, the concreteness of the image is such a tectonic presence that they become images of their own construction. In a way, they are concrete yeah. of their own abstractions. They really achieve this kind of conceptual circularity where abstraction meets what he would call concrete. Kind of ties them to those painted wooden constructions, too, in a way, even though they're Absolutely. works of art that are totally unlike. Absolutely. Luis perez Aramis, thanks so much for talking with me. Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.